Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Always appreciate you being here for us. We got a lot to get to on the show today. How about Anthony Farnell, the Global News Chief Meteorologist? He gives you a weekend weather forecast. I mean, you need to know this. The weather is affecting every aspect of what we're doing. If, if outside's safer than inside, we got to get outside more. The weather hasn't cooperated. Really great chat with Van Malis Subramaniam, uh, Globe and Mail Future of Work reporter. That's a new beat at the Globe and Mail, but understandably so, given how some people are hesitant potentially to return to the office. Some people can't wait to be back. I love the office, not the show. I love being here. So a lot of people can't wait to do that. And yes, George Strombolopoulos uh, with a chat about his exclusive interview with Alex Lifeson, Getty Lee. They came over to his house uh, and had a long chat about uh, Rush and where they've gone and how they've grieved the loss of their friend and mate uh, and drummer for more than 45 years, uh, Neil Peart. Uh, that's all coming up on the Toronto Today podcast, which starts now. Let me get to this on, on the subway. Here's what I struggle with sometimes with how we uh, talk about the news. And we talk about the news on this show. And we do that pretty regularly. And you'll often hear the phrase, people, people say, People say, and I see a headline on Blog To. I like Blog To. I get I get stories from there. I think there's a lot of debatables. I think they frame things properly. Here's the headline: People in Toronto are starting to avoid the TTC amid a rash of random violent attacks. How many people? Are numbers down? Are we? Are, is are these? Wait a minute. Did we just interview two people? Is this a little bit like the doctor thing we do? Experts are saying. Oh, are they? Are those experts saying that? Can I? What if I find two experts that say the exact opposite thing? What if you have two experts that say everybody should? We shouldn't be going to uh, arenas and stadiums. The risk is far too. We've got to close these games down. How? But what if I find two experts that say no? That would be terrible. There's some risk benefit associated with society. People went and got vaccinated. Maybe they had COVID already. They're so we can do that all the time. We can play that little game. I get really frustrated. The phrases I hate the most, I'll give you three of them. People like many people say, which many people? What if I find many that say the opposite? Experts, experts say we need to have a mask mandate. Experts say rising. Ca- I can find experts that say lots of different things. Doctors are, we don't usually do that one. People in Toronto are starting to avoid the TTC. So let's drill down on that for just a few minutes. Have there been random violent attacks? Yes. It's not been an easy couple weeks for the TTC. And you think about an industry, uh, a methodology of getting from point A to B that is easy. It's Earth Day today. It's more environmentally friendly than taking a big car into the city. And I'm pro car. I know many people, especially because I just did it because of where they live, where they live. This is actually true. And, and it actually is applicable here. Many people don't have access to public transit. I don't live on the subway line, so I do have to take my car to get somewhere. But many people listening don't necessarily, and they love the TTC. They love the convenience of it. We know, right, that there's a 416-905 dichotomy that sometimes those of us suburbanites are kind of envious of our city friends that they can just take a walk, head here, head there. If you were going, we're, we're talking about going to New York City at the end of August, uh, my wife and I, we wouldn't take, we wouldn't rent a car. If we were in Manhattan, like we may be going to a couple days of, uh, of U.S. Open tennis and doing a little bit of this, doing a little of that, living life again. How about that? Um, what a concept. Okay, exactly. Um, and, uh, and I think to myself, okay, there's a lot of envy with being able to just pop down, 
get in a train, you get where you need to go. There's no parking. There's no worried about, about driving and people crossing street, all that stuff. But the TTC has had a rough couple weeks. Okay. We were talking about a kid. Remember, this just happened. It feels like it just happened, but it's two weeks ago now. A 21-year-old kid shot to death at the TTC. He was a student here, an international student uh, from Pakistan. TTC Sherburne subway station. He's going to work part-time. He gets killed. We later find another man was killed in very similar fashion two days earlier, and they've now arrested the suspect in that particular case. Just a chance meeting. Snap of a finger. Remember that movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow? That had to do with whether she got off uh, the subway at a given time or not. And the, the movie frames two different lives that occur. I think she catches her boyfriend with another woman if if she gets out of the doors at that point and if she doesn't, everything changes and it's different. But we already know in the audience what the boyfriend's doing. Then there's what happens Sunday night, obviously. It's a hard to watch video. Um, a person getting shoved at Blur Young Station into the tracks. She survives. It's rather remarkable that she lived. It's, it's fantastic uh, that she lived. And we now have a woman in custody. Here's the one thing. And you heard, maybe you heard uh, Dave Bradley play the clip. I heard it while I was driving yesterday on John Oakley's show with the um, person documenting from the TTC saying, we don't have enough support right now. In comparison to like where the L is in New York or, uh, or, or excuse me, in Chicago, uh, which is more an overground train, an L train there, or you're talking about the New York subway system in New York. Um, we don't have the we don't have the manpower, the manpower, the woman power. We don't have it at any point in time. There's eight officers to handle every subway station. Now, we can't turn this into the quote unquote police state and we can't have uh, somebody watching for every scenario. And I don't know if cameras matter. There was complaints, obviously, two weeks ago, week and a half ago. We had um, a, a subway shooting and a bomb go off in a, a New York City subway. It was lucky that it wasn't worse damage and there weren't wasn't a worse body count and there weren't worse casualties. OK, this often happens um, when they bombed the World Trade Center in 1993. People died, but it could have been much, much, much worse. And the concept was, well, we don't have cameras. Well, cameras are only going to tell you so much cameras. You can end up making an arrest a little bit later on. And that seems to be what has happened here. But there have been obviously if you feel it, it's real for you. There are people that are more fearful of getting shoved onto the tracks by a random stranger or gun violence in the actual subways or just plain getting harassed. This has been a problem as well. What's happened during the pandemic, so it would appear, is we also have driven people that suffer from mental illness down into the subway. There's been nowhere for them to go. Long, cold, hard winter. All that is accurate. Those are boxes that we check and go, yes, we all agree on these things. So then they're down there, but eventually problems happen and violent incidents happen. That's not a stereotype of people who suffer from mental illness. That's telling you that when the boxes are checked, tension is raised, homeless, mentally ill, all these things are issues. And again, I can't look at somebody and know that's the case. But after we see people arrested and the cops interrogate that person, they say, yes, this is what this person's suffering from. That's how we come to those conclusions. Asking you that question at two uh, at 289-975-1640, do you feel safe riding the TTC? Do you put random incidents aside? I think there's a lot of things that we do that for, and we just say, that's random. 
I have to move on with my life. I have to take the subway. But maybe some of you are saying that's a preference of mine to avoid it right now. We sure like big city life is this. And this is from the blog to, uh, you know, story on it. And I think this is uh, this is how people feel. Sketchy stuff's part of big city life, they write. Sure, but there's quantifiable evidence to show that violence has been getting worse on some Toronto transit vehicles lately. Um, that n- the number of criminal and bylaw offenses on TTC buses shot up in 2021. Once people started riding again, it had been declining for years, but it's up 173 to 312. That's big. That's almost double the number of, uh, of, of what's deemed a criminal offense on a TTC bus. And you might think, well, is that all, you know, stabbings? No, but it is. It, it would count assault. It would count elements of abuse. It would count, you know, forms of harassment. And none of it's any good because it only has to happen once and maybe twice for you to say, I don't want to do that anymore. We know that that's the case. Look, if you were mugged walking down a certain side street, in the city of Toronto, even us, even walking by the park, you're not going to take that route again anytime soon. Okay. That's behavioral. Psychologists have studied this for decades and they say you won't go back to the scene of trauma per se. And I think we'd all understand that. I was, uh, I had my car broken into outside a hotel um, when I was doing OHL games. Um, you stay over on a Saturday night, you got a Saturday night game, uh, you got a Sunday morning game. The, the window was like a smash and grab. I was so stupid. I left hockey equipment in there. I left a leather jacket in there. I left stuff that was visible and uh, and made it quite appealing to break my back window and steal all my stuff. I called the general manager of the, of the hockey club, the president of the hockey club. They were nice enough to put me up in those evenings. And I said, I'm ne- I, I can't stay at that hotel anymore. What are the odds I'm getting hit twice? But that's the whole point. I felt better being at another place. And if you see things, let alone have them happen to you on the TTC, you will react differently. So the TTC has got a call to make here. Okay, they got to spend more infrastructure, use more man and woman power to make people feel safe. Feelings do matter. Okay, okay. Now, now your feelings can't influence what I do, but if they affect what you do, the TTC will realize it, and less people will ride it. If you think the go train's too expensive for four four guys to come in and watch a watch a Leafs game on a Saturday night, and you pay eighty eight bucks for your round trip tickets, that's how you feel, and you decide let's all pack into a car, pay thirty bucks, and park feet away from Scotiabank Arena, and spend the other fifty bucks on large draft beers. I mean, that's how people think and operate. So that's real. But the TTC's got a call to make in terms of putting more personnel. Um, that can handle things like this or spot things like this sooner. I don't know how when I see the woman pushing the other woman that somebody's there at that given time, at that moment, and they've got the wherewithal to stop that particular crime. Maybe she's taken into custody earlier and there isn't a woman hunt on the streets of Toronto for her. I don't know. 289-975-1640. Give me your thoughts on whether assaults on the TTC have changed your mind about using it. I understand the media's role in this. Nobody wants to scare you from riding the TTC, but we're not doing our due diligence and our job and using some objectivity. We don't tell you about these crimes. These are higher profile, random attacks. And people are, I think people are more alerted. I know people that I know taking the subway are more conscious of it than they were a week ago. I've told this story 30 times. So if it's 31 for you or it's 15 or 18, I apologize. 
I wanted to buy an album. I started listening to the radio in the spring of 81 as an eight-year-old. Eight? Yeah. Um, and uh, nine? I don't remember. Um, anyway, <laughs> the, uh, the, I, I went to Woolco, Woolco to get an album. I wanted to buy a record album. And, uh, and REO Speedwagon's High Infidelity. All those songs were on the radio then. Keep on loving you. Take it on the run. Um, and I'm like, that's the album I want. My mom looks at the album cover, with the one with all the cats. The album cover doesn't have it. My mom has the cats now, and uh, and she says you can't you can't have that. There's a there's a woman with a like a I see a bra strap on the cover is in essence. And I know it sounds like my mom is Tipper Gore from like 1986, but good gracious, I wanted that album. What did I settle for? A classic that this song is on, "Moving Pictures" by Rush, and they just celebrated its 40 year anniversary. Put out a live show from Maple Leaf Gardens, by the way, from 1981. George Strombolopoulos, you know him extremely well. You've seen him. You heard him. He's ubiquitous with Canadian culture and music and sports and all that stuff. And uh, George spent some time with me, had an exclusive in-person interview with the two surviving members of Rush. They had to stay quiet about Neil's illness. They had a lot more years of Rush to give. We've had so much tragedy in music lately. Um, and we had a conversation about it. And George started off by talking. I'm going to put a much longer version of this on the podcast a little later on today. We're going to put that out. We talked for about 30 minutes about music and COVID and culture and and uh, and and grieving and, and relationships and feelings and all that stuff. And uh, But George started off this chat we had by talking about how everybody wanted to approach this conversation. Nobody wanted to look like they were getting over on trauma. This is, too, we knew the guy, they loved the guy. And I, you know, I have so much love and, and admiration for Getty and Alex as people, never mind as musicians. Yeah. And the way they've handled such trauma. You know, Alex was the very first musician I ever spoke to in my life. When I was, I think, eight, he called my grandmother's house looking for a tenant who was living at the house. And it was, and it's like, hey, so and so there? I'm like, yeah. Let me get him. So I would get him and he would call the time. And finally, at one point he said, you know, that Alex guy keeps calling is who that's Alex Lifeson. What? And I had no idea. So he would always call my grandmother's. I was, you probably heard spirit of spirit of radio on the radio, like an hour earlier or a day earlier. And that's the guy, right? That's the guy. And it's, I mean, my show was, I call my show the spirit of radio because of that. Yeah. And I, I yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah. I love those guys so much. And I was really, I really wanted to do that conversation with great care. But George, I think we talk about um, artists seem to, even to, even to the casual music fan, like more than an athlete, maybe more than a politician or an actor, the musicians are the ones we take really, really hard because I, I think they can keep touring and they can keep always making music. And I think the the imprint they leave on us and, you know, you and I are just two absolute music nuts. It never goes away. So we always think there's more. And we always like I can I somebody comes on the radio and I'm, I'm like alive, not with us anymore, alive, not with yeah. it. Like it, it, it gets trapped in your brain that we're without this great artist anymore. Yeah, and you know, so much of music is mythology, right? And so much of, of us growing up were the the big three or four that passed in the early 70s, losing Jim and Janice and Jimmy, right? Early, early, and then at the end of the decade, losing Bonham and John Lennon. And you you start to think about the mythology of the rock star as a part of the story. So we are surprised and not surprised when something happens, but what we actually have, and I think at the root of it is for a lot of people, it's a tragedy because they lose somebody they know. For many, it's a tragedy because they lose somebody who's 
written music or connected to them in a really meaningful way. And then for a, a whole bunch of other people, it is a collective loss. And grief is so personal that mm-hmm. to be able to do it collectively, I think, adds a layer to it and a really interesting layer to it. And I think, especially for like cats like us and, and some of your people listening, losing Prince was devastating because it should, you're like, what? Lemmy, I thought was going to live forever. I thought Lemmy was going to live forever. You know, I was talking to Bowie's people about doing a thing with one of Bowie's producers and possibly with David a month earlier. And because I'd interviewed David in the past and then they're gone. Yeah. And you're like, what? What I find really fascinating is the, is the being sick and dying in private. Like overdoses happen, right? There's tragedy, they happen. But the choice to die in private, to suffer for two years, to experience for however long, that is a really, really, Chadwick Boseman, right? Virgil Abloh, um, Neil. It's Mm -hmm. a really powerful, powerful thing. And it puts an enormous amount of weight on everybody around you. As as Getty and Alex talked about, and Bowie was like that, wasn't he? He had an album three before Black Star. He had an album a few years earlier, and people were like, "Where is he? he doesn't want to do interviews. Will he yeah. tour ever again?" And you, so you ask these questions. If someone puts out new music that is that iconic and snap of a finger can sell twenty five, thirty thousand tickets, you're like, "Well, where are they?" And when when we didn't see him, we're like we're starting to wonder. And then he passes away, and this great art comes out. He he makes this art, George, knowing that it will be his last album, knowing it's a goodbye to. So not just his fans, but to the world. And you're just struck by, and he made videos like that too. The black star video is hard to watch knowing what he knew, isn't it? Yeah. But that record is so perfect. It made me, I don't believe in an afterlife, but when I saw that, that, that video and I heard that record, I thought, ah, David knows something. (laughs) David knows something, you know, it's yeah, it's, it's. And I think again, going back to what we were talking about previously, Mm -hmm. just as friends, the idea Mm -hmm. that music we come from a time where these musicians were really different, where it didn't just feel like marketing. Marketing was part of it for sure, but it wasn't just marketing. That music was an expression of counterculture. And when you lose a Lemmy and you lose a David and you lose a Prince, uh, you lose a Neil, you were losing people who weren't products. They may have been commodified, but that's not the thing. And I, th- I, I find that, and I, I think maybe there's a little sadness in us because we wonder if that, we know we can never have the seventies again. So the, I talked to slash about this, trying to figure mm-hmm. out why those bands in the eighties were the way they were. And he said, he says, you'll never actually have that. You'll have bands who can recreate the sounds, but you'll never actually have that again because you'll never have the seventies. And we grew up in the seventies. So all those cats who put out music in the eighties are from the seventies. You two and Motley Crue couldn't be more different. Pearl Jam and Motley Crue, you two couldn't be more different but they had the seventies in common and, and Sly and the family stones music in the seventies and, and, and parliaments music. You'll never have that again because you'll never have the seventies. Not, not that things won't be great, but you won't have that. And I think we know when we started to lose these absolute epics is that we have in our system blown up the bridges for those kinds of artists to reach us. And it's much, much harder for a community like that to be to find an audience. Those artists are out there, but to find the audience, that's very hard. We blew up those bridges in the in the 2000s. And um, and I think you know, losing Bowie, you're like, well, that's it. That's it for that. Yeah. You know, well, we, we have Prince. No, we don't. Like, that's it for that. 
Yeah, and, that, that, it, it was very much like that. I should remind people, because uh, you can recognize the voice, we're talking to Jordan Strombolopoulos, of course. Uh, he's hosting Strombo on Apple Music Hits. Uh, just living out that dream. Five o'clock, by the way, Eastern time. You're doing, again, you're doing everything that anybody would have wanted to do when we were 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. I wanted to be a DJ, and then you're like, wait a minute. It, we were getting automated, right? You don't get yeah. to play all your own songs. You don't get to put requests on the air. Yeah. And and talk radio was getting prominent, but um, you're, you're like, this must just feel so home and comfortable to you. And then when you get artists like Getty and Alex and they say, we'll talk and we'll talk with you. And, and you, like you build up, the, I think, two things there, right? Your passion for them and music in general and and trust. And yeah. like you don't you don't get that two, two, three, four years in it really. I know that you don't, you don't want it to be about you, but they, they come to you and they go, we'll tell the story to you. And it's not an easy story to tell. And it's not an easy conversation for you to have with them either, because you, you relate to them, but only yeah. those two guys, their wives don't even know what they feel given that the closeness of that band. I think Getty and Alex knew that I would be hyper respectful, of course, and take great care with mm -hmm. it. I think I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not afraid of the real human conversation, but moreover, I don't want to exploit pain or trauma. And it's a really delicate balance. It's even odd to talk about it, but it's, it's why I'm talking about it and partly because it's you, but also because I think people, especially grown men need to know, need to be given different language to be vulnerable and to, and to understand what's made them who they are. And sometimes you, we learn differently, right? So I, I, Nurturing and lessons don't ever teach me anything. Where I learn is hearing somebody that I respect say something about their experience, and I pick up on it. And, and Ged and Alex, they did that. And that's the power of a conversation like that. So as much as it is about Alex and Getty and, and Neil and the band, it's also about how we as grown-ups handle this in odd ways, painful, uncomfortable, awkward and I, I just think we just think it's really important for, especially for for dudes from that era, for everybody just to watch it and go, man, it's okay to hurt, and it's okay to not know. It's okay to not know what to do. And I, I thought Getty and Alex, I'm I'm so grateful for them that they that they that they showed up the way they did, and I'm not surprised, but that they they took on a truly uncomfortable spot. George Strombolopoulos joining me. Um, and we'll have more of that chat in our uh, podcast on Apple Podcasts about an hour and a half uh, after the show. So about 10, 30, 10, 15 or so. Um, I, I, honestly, I can't thank George enough. And uh, he, he, the goal is always, he's, a, he's my age, but it's amazing. You can have role models your own age. I always think age is just a number. You can have somebody come in and uh, and lead your team in a workplace and they're 10 years younger than you and you're like no you got the vision like sen seniority you throw out the window sometimes because guess what seniority makes you a little little tired sometimes seniority makes you a little bit lazy sometimes um you want to you want to gravitate towards the smartest person in the room and if that person is a contemporary of yours if they're 10 years younger fantastic and uh and george is that um i have such immense respect for the things he's tried the things he succeeded at the things he knows he does well the things he has tried and that maybe didn't work out to how he liked because i think that happens to all of us if you spend a couple decades or so in this business and um just just a great great role model i often think about that you get an nfl quarterback come into uh, a huddle and he's 23 and he's fresh out of college 
and he's telling 32-year-olds where to go, 35-year-olds on the offensive line, grizzled veterans. This is how it's going to be. This is what I need from you. I need more from you. Age is just a number with that kind of stuff. You've got that it factor or you don't. And uh, and again, I <laughs> it doesn't mean anything if somebody's been, I've been at this job 11 years. Yeah. Are, are you still being innovative? Are you still contributing? Do you still have fresh ideas? Do you still want to you know think things out? Can you admit when you're wrong? Love our conversation uh, with George Strombolopoulos. And I can't recommend that chat with uh, Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee enough. Go seek that out on Apple Music. You were talking yesterday about gas prices, all the uh, all the developments that you see with the uh, technology. It allows people to work from home. Some people uh, just feel their mental health is better while being at home. Some people can't wait to get back to the office and see faces. Uh, it, there is a <laughs> there's a divide, and we argue. I feel as like we argue about everything, and I wish we didn't. Uh, but uh, interestingly enough, um, we have a guest on who's uh, covered so many interesting beats, and this is no different in her uh, journalism career. Van Malis Subramaniam is joining us right now. Van Malis, it's great to have you on. I've always been a fan of your work. I loved uh, you, uh, you. You did a lot of cannabis writing, and I'm not yeah, a cannabis partaker, but I found the whole entry into the marketplace so interesting. When the Globe says, hey, be our future of work reporter what was your reaction <laughs> um thanks for having me um it was exciting because the future of work that's just so much to explore in this beat and it's not just you know immediate issues like are we going back to the office what's the form of the office that we're going back to it's also interesting broader trends in the labor movement like you know unionization rates going up, like changing demographics in workplaces because of high immigration rates. So that's just so mm. much to dig into. Um, but yeah, it's a super interesting beat. And in your, it's weird because in your bio, it, it, in, in, it somebody writes this obviously for you, but they note uh, you're going to cover a, quote, growing chasm between employers and employees. And I feel that. And as I said, like, I don't, to do what I do, I think I, I need to, be here. It's mornings. It's, it's very busy. And I love seeing people, but I also, I love the job and I, not everybody feels the same way and not everybody's as willing to, to sort of get, get extricated out of what they've known for the last 25 months, because maybe they're happier and maybe they like it better and they're sure saving money. Absolutely. So I think the key thing that you said is the last 25 months. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we forget that two years is a very long time and people have adjusted to a certain routine. To a large extent, they have made massive life changes, like buying a house, you know, one and a half to two hours away from their workplace or maybe in a different city. And therefore, commuting becomes almost impossible to do five days a week. So you're seeing all these things that people have done over the last two years where they are not willing to give up the flexibility or to prioritize coming into the office, even in some cases when they're being told to come into the office. In fact, um, you know, the, the, the many, the, the hundreds of surveys out, uh, out there, you know, between last year and this year on returning to the office and what people want. And for the most part, I will say that it's, you're averaging around over 50% of white-collar workers, and I'm talking about in North America, I'm not mm -hmm. sure about Europe, mm -hmm. um, who are just not happy about the idea and don't definitely don't want to come back five days a week. So they might come back one or two days a week, but the idea that pre-pandemic of commuting into work from Monday to Friday 
that is just not a thing that's happening right now. And it's going to be difficult for employers to kind of convince the bulk of their workforce to come back into the office. That's so fascinating. We're joined by Van Mella Subramaniam uh, from the Globe and Mail. She's the future of work reporter there on Toronto Today. You bring up something so interesting because sometimes I, I, I roll my eyes at polls, I roll my eyes at service, but I think this is genuine because guess what? People with that anonymity will tell you how they really feel. And you know and I know there's people in our industry, it could be any industry, it could be the medical industry, and, and maybe an essential worker that's been in a, a, in a warehouse or they've, they're a cook in a restaurant and they've never stopped going into work. You know, you can get together for a backyard barbecue or watch your kid's sporting event. And, and when someone says, oh, I don't know, is it safe in the workplace? Like, there's judgment. Like, it, like not everybody, nobody wants to argue about it, but you do look and go, you're kidding me, right? You, you Are you the person that went to Florida on an airplane like last week? Or were you at the Raptors game? And you won't come back into an office with eight people? There's a lot of that, isn't there? So I think in these surveys, you get a lot of honesty. Absolutely. So to a large extent, these surveys, you're right. The people who participate in this, these surveys are people who, who, you know, like want to be honest and have strong feelings about this. But I will say with the whole return to work debate, um, we're definitely talking a lot about primarily about white collar workers who have the flexibility and choice of working from home. Because, I, you know, we do remember that in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, and I wrote a couple of stories about this, there were people living in situations where, you know, their houses were crowded because they just yeah. didn't have enough space. And so for an employer to tell them, hey, you now can't come into the office, we're going to pay, and we're not paying for your internet, we're not paying for anything extra, and you have to do your job in the same way in, in a space where your kids are running around and schools are closed, that is tough. So it, it's not... It's, it, it's a debate, right? Like, however, from that point till now, I think people have adjusted. So one of the examples I always use is, you know, I was tracking the number of people who um, who's changed their mind about sending their kids to daycare five, five times a day. And, you know, you know, with daycare, I mean, I'm sure parents know this, but ch- even pre-COVID, the chances of your kid getting sick are very high. Um, you know, there's always this, you have to just shuffle them in and out of daycare and there's a lot of logistics involved in that so and it's expensive so people have said you know I'm just going to send my kid in there once or twice a week because I have that flexibility of having them be at home the rest of the time if you have made permanent adjustments like this that reduce your cost by about by hundreds Mm -hmm. a month it's going to be hard to get them to change right and that that's what i'm hearing a lot especially from women um female white collar employees i I bet you're hearing that i want to give you an example and quote from your story before we go i got about a minute but i want to set it up for the listeners and get your reaction greg another greg a mid-level manager working in the finance sector in toronto said most of his peers were not interested in returning to the office but tended to not express that sentiment out loud to their superiors because they did not want to offend senior management and listen yeah there 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 are going to be some jobs where there is that rubber, you know, rubber meets the road moment, right? And I think bosses will look and say, wait a minute, I can see on your social media, like this isn't about fear anymore. This is about your salary or or what you got to put in your gas tank or practicality. I'll listen to this, but I need you in certain points in time during the week. Most bosses want to make a hybrid work, but there must be some employees that say, no hybrid at all. I'm st- I'm I'm home for good, and that that boss may eventually look elsewhere if if they really need them in some, from time to time. Right, absolutely. So two quick points on this: a, 
I think employees can very uh, effectively argue that their productivity rates have not been affected at all by working at home. And that, like, you're, you're seeing that in survey after survey after survey, and I think employers would agree with that. But the second point I want to make here mm. is that I think employers are still, they, there is a culture of surveillance in how we have always worked, where they like to physically see their employees at their desks working. And I don't know, uh, I think a lot mm. of employers haven't, you know, wanted to really adjust to that. So they've just been postponing this idea of coming back into the office, but they haven't really restructured the way of working where the office mm. serves a different function, where it's just staff for team building and you don't have to be there to just sit at your desk and do the same thing that you do at home. That's right. I think there are a lot of questions to explore here. There are. Uh, please go read here in the Globe and Mail. Uh, this is really important stuff and and this is your beat and, and these are the evolving conversations we're going to have over the next several months. And please, um, thank you for making time for our audience and I hope you'll do it again. Thanks so much. I want to bring on Dr. Lori Turnbull, uh, who we usually uh, speak to on Fridays, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. How's it? By the way, April's been really bad weather-wise here. How have you, how have you had it out there? This is it's it's really it's weighing heavily. It's tolling on our on our minds and and our mental health out here in Ontario, Lori. Yeah, um, I've actually been in Ottawa for most of April. And oh, you know I, I, then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm living that. I'm living that. Even snow this week. And so, yeah, this has not been a very inspiring April weather-wise. Not at all. So when I mention Pierre is drawing these big crowds, and I see he's deemed as, as populist, I think, I think his critics are almost using populist as an insult. But I think we saw, I thought we saw Bill Clinton run a populist campaign. And when I was in university, that's how I felt. Bill Clinton was running populist campaigns. People couldn't wait to see him. I think John Kennedy would be considered populist compared to Richard Nixon. Is Are, are people trying to use the, the P word almost as, mm-hmm. as an insult and to kind of degrade what, what Pierre's doing here? I think so. I mean, I think when... People use the word populist when they apply it to Pierre Polyev in this case. I think you're right. They're trying to be critical. They're trying to, and and they're trying to draw a comparison to his tactics and those of Donald Trump and say, you know, this is the kind of divisive politics that we don't want in Canada kind of thing. But I mean, you're right. Like the word populism is so flexible and it has applied to many different people with very different political viewpoints. And if you take a sort of textbook reading of it without, you know, kind of mapping on all of the things that we kind of load into the term today, um, populism can sound really good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Populism can sound like, you know, this is about people being in control of their lives and sort of taking a lot of the politics and the elitism out of it and focusing what on, um, you know, people as the experts of what's better for them. Right. And so, but then it kind of gets turned into um, a kind of anti-government messaging sometimes that is designed to make people not trust government and not trust people around them. And then it becomes something different that is not, that, that can be very, that can be kind of a weaponized Thing in politics and so you're right absolutely so when people say to you laurie when when pierre is connecting i listened to him yesterday and he is almost um he's, he's got a little bit of a, a cocky swagger to him there's no doubt about it uh, mm-hmm. but i also think and that might be a, a little bit just a touch from the trump playbook whereas if you if you you know if you say something and and sort of have that swagger people will see a really confident person and at the same time i i, I think he's a little bit shocked with the nerve that he's hit. Uh, there's no doubt everybody is weighing in opinions on him, whereas 
all these other candidates are probably what can I do? I we just know right now that fifteen hundred people aren't going aren't falling over each other, uh, waiting outside in cold weather in Canada in in April in the rain to see Leslie and Lewis right now. They're just not. Mm, I know, I know what you mean. It's a very different campaign for Polyev than it is for any of the others. None of them could really replicate this approach, and I mean that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to sign up wildly more members than anybody else, but it could mean that it just, but it's certainly the case that there is a public attention to his campaign. There is this kind of bravado on his part. Like he, he does kind of walk around like a celebrity. And if anybody, if any of his opponents criticize him, he just sort of, you know, it's almost like he just gives them the finger and says, yeah, well, you did this. And like, but he doesn't let it phase him. And I think you're right. Like when, if somebody has that kind of swagger, then they're not going to get tripped up over fact-based you know, criticisms of the, the kinds of things they're proposing. They just brush it off. And so then when, if you support someone like that, you know, maybe some people are supporting Pierre Polyev because they think he'd be a good prime minister or they think he knows what he's doing. They trust him with money, whatever the case may be. And maybe some people are supporting him because they like that swagger that he has and they find mm. it, you know, appealing, comforting, whatever the case may be, which is a whole other thing entirely, right? Like what, what is it, if he, if he wins this thing and then he goes on to be successful in the next election, what will, what does that say? Right? Like, did people vote for him again for his policy positions, or did they vote for him because of the sort of presence he has that seems to be gaining momentum? And I think there's so many lessons here, aren't there, about about listening and about you know being aware. And boy, we saw in the United States, didn't we, in 2016, we we saw people say, "I never would have considered you know uh, jumping or or staying out of this election." or voting for Donald Trump, but I'm not being heard right now. I might be a lifelong Democrat. I might lean more left than right, but I need to be heard. And man, I mean, those four weeks we saw in Ottawa, I know there were problematic groups there. I know there were problematic people there to a great extent, but it wasn't everybody. And there were a lot of people saying this is the only way I know to show up and let people know that I'm frustrated because my MP's not listening. My local politicians aren't listening. We don't think the prime minister is listening. That's, that's a real thing. And everybody gets to vote. Mm-hmm, exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Like the trucker convoy was about, you know, there were some people involved that were disruptive and that were doing illegal things and mm-hmm. were trying to intimidate people, local businesses, people walking down the street. Like it was not, not a great environment. But there are also lots of people who, you know, lots and lots of people who did not show up and, did, and didn't do anything disruptive whatsoever, but gave some money and said, hey, like I'm... I'm very interested in the, what the, the convoy is pushing for. And I find myself sympathetic because I don't, as you say, no one's listening. My lot is getting worse and I don't feel like anybody is taking that seriously. And so I need a change. And so this is, you know, becoming like if, if that momentum continues into the next federal election, which I don't think is around the corner, mm-hmm. um, it will be this kind of, you know, change election. And that will be the, the challenge for Trudeau, if he's still leader of the Liberals at that point, will be to try to kind of hold on to what they've got. And maybe the Liberal NDP deal is a part of that, right? Is trying to kind of, they're foreseeing that this is going to be a lot of change momentum in the next election. And so they're offering stability in a way that even goes outside the boundaries of the party. 
to include a more formal arrangement with the party that's willing to party. I, I agree. That's a really interesting answer. Dr. Laurie Turnbull is our guest on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. Um, I want to end on, on asking about this survey I saw about the British monarchy. So this, the Queen and their influence on us. The Queen turns 96 this week. A couple days ago, she turned 96. And uh, the survey asked Canadians their opinions of the British royal family. It's an odd one. We all, 63% of Canadians have a favorable opinion of the Queen. Uh, 58% say they'll feel sadness when she passes away. It. I, I almost feel like post that happening, um, we might have a lot more of an of an assessment. But the Queen's been our constant, right? Seven decades on on the throne. She's on our money. She's influ. We remember it was forty years ago, right? In nineteen eighty two. Like that's a huge deal when we have our our Constitution Act and and it changes. But I, in a post Queen world, I don't know that we'll have the same reference for. Charles or William or I just I, I wonder if we're headed in a different direction post Queen Elizabeth. Am, am I off track on that? Oh, I don't think you're off track at all. I mean, there's a lot of admiration for the Queen at, in who she is as an individual and the kind of service and strength that she's shown throughout her life. Even people who aren't living in Commonwealth countries, like there's there's still, you know, even in the U.S., for example, there's there's admiration for her mm-hmm. when she dies. I think there's going to be absolutely be critical questions around the institution because <clears throat> in some ways the support that people have for that institution, if they have support for it at all, is sort of wrapped up in their feelings about her. And so then it will pose a question, what do we want to do? Do we still want to do this? The complicated part is if we don't do that, then what? Because it's not just about changing who's on our money, which we're doing anyway. Yeah. But it's about like, what would we do instead? If we don't have a monarch, we don't have a crown. If we, that, you know, if, that meant we didn't have a governor general. Then we have to change the whole system. Would we have a president? Um, you know, this would all require major, major constitutional change. And so I think sometimes that's the stopping point. Is it sort of like in the absence of a consensus of what to switch to, we just keep doing the same thing. And so, but are there ways to modernize that? Are there ways to make it more of a Canadian? Even though it is a Canadian head of state, we have a governor general. She she does the royal ascent. She's mm-hmm. you know all that sort of thing. Is there a way to kind of park the institutions more? on our own soil so that it doesn't feel so strange that we have a head of state that's somewhere else. Yeah, we saw we saw Barbados do it. Jamaica mm-hmm. wants to uh, wants to cut ties. There's always questions as to whether Australia would go it alone. And yeah, I think it's almost we don't want to insult the queen while she's still alive about, about that kind of concept. Like, I think it's a more valid, debatable conversation after after yeah. she's not with us. I do. And we the complicating part for us, too, is that we have provinces. Yeah. Like Barbados is a unitary state, so it's much easier for them to get agreement, right? We've got a whole bunch of people who would come to the table. Yeah. If it gets us a cheaper vacation flight, not many people from Barbados are coming to Toronto and Ottawa for vacation in uh, in uh, February and March. That's also a big, uh, big factor. Got it. You have oh, a great okay. weekend, Laurie. Thanks so much for the time today. Anytime, Greg. Take Dr. Care. Laurie Turnbull joining us.